The Sword and Laser. I'm Veronica Belmont. And I'm Tom Merritt. And this is episode number 28, and it's time to wrap up our last book choice, uh, Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom, with an interview with its author, Cory Doctorow. That's right. I had a good time reading that book. Did you? Yeah, no, I really enjoyed it. It was I, a quick I, read. It was quick, but it was fun. And I hadn't read anything that old from Corey. I think I, I, for some reason, I think most of the stuff I've read from him has been recent short stories or, or more recent books. So it was fun to, to read something a little greener from him. It, it, and we'll talk about that in, in the uh, interview with him because we will be welcoming him to the show. Yes. And actually, he's going to be our, our, our chooser for the next book. So listen carefully. We'll talk about it at the end, too. But we'll see how we organically came to the decision for our next book. Yes, yes. Can't wait to get to that. Uh, But first, shall we start with a couple quick burns? Yes, let's. Our first burn news item is the ongoing war between Google and the Authors Guild and authors who aren't in the Authors Guild. It's a three-part war, apparently. Uh, Sci-fi writer Ursula K. Le Guin has joined the battle, writing a petition against the settlement. She even withdrew from the Authors Guild. Most of the people who are against this aren't in the Authors Guild, and what they object to is... Well, just to give you the background, Google wants to digitize all the books in the world and make them searchable. The Authors Guild didn't want them to do that without permission. So now Google and the Authors Guild have reached an agreement where Google can digitize everything and sell it, which they didn't necessarily want to do right away at the beginning. And the Authors Guild will collect the revenues and distribute it to the authors. But not all the authors are happy with this. In fact, a lot of authors aren't members of the Authors Guild. And the Authors (laughs) Guild still collecting the money. Uh, so it's a big hullabaloo. And uh, Ursula K. Legan has actually withdrawn from the Authors Guild and is uh, working against the settlement. She wants a settlement, but she doesn't want the settlement that Google and the Authors Guild have reached. And on a slightly lighter note, um, if Valentine's Day has got you down, Ionide can help you feel better through others' pain uh, with a look at the eight... Shout in Freud! Shout in Freud! With a look at the eight comic book romances that will make you feel better. Um, yeah, I'm, not, I'm glad I'm not in a relationship with any one of them. No. no, that must be a hard kind of thing to deal with being in a relationship with a superhero. Green Lantern, yeah, Spider Man. I mean, seriously, that must be hard. I, I've wondered that through the movies myself. I mean, he's kind of a sexy devil. MJ's a little time, messed up. He's but... just running in and out all the time and jumping through windows and and but he's always there to to rescue you at the end of the day. Anyway, if you think your relationship is bad. Check out the superhero relationships. Yeah, it'll definitely make you feel better on this Hallmark holiday, which we are recording on, but you won't be listening on. So hopefully yours was as, as not as terrible as these superheroes. All right, time to engage with the author of our latest book, Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom, and with him, do the wrap-up. So as you all know, we recently finished Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom, the reader's choice for the book club from io9's top 20 science fiction books of the decade. And joining us today from London is its author, Cory Doctorow. Thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure. We all loved the book, and it was a lot of fun to read. It was a quick read, too, which usually we read like huge, epic, like 800-page tomes. Yeah, it was yeah, amazing you know, to watch I- the progress on my Kindle. It just flew. Yeah. The percentage. Ha. 
Well, you know, I, I, uh, it was after I went to Robert Charles Wilson signing for Spin, I think it was, uh, which is an amazing book. I think it was Spin that was only 200 pages long. And uh, I said to Bob, you know, like, this is a novel that's 200 pages long. Sorry, my uh, cuckoo clock. Yeah, I, forgot. <laughs> I thought that was the, uh, oh, the sound of that idea hitting you. I said, Bob, you, you've written this 200-page book, like, to, to – do publishers actually buy 200-page books? And he said, yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's kind of when I figured that I could move from short stories into novels because I'd, you know, I'd just founded a company and raised some capital for it and was in the process of moving to Silicon Valley to run our, our office there. And it was, you know, it was kind of a crazy time. And I thought, well, I could probably do 200 pages. So that's how Down and Out actually came about. It's funny, reading books on Kindle now, I actually have no idea how long they really are until I start reading and then I see the progress bar move on the bottom. Um, what was what was the experience of writing a, a novel as opposed to short stories? Well, I think every novel has been a different experience. Uh, Down at the Magic Kingdom, um, being the first novel, I, I there was the there was that lurking fear that I wouldn't be able to finish it at all, and mm-hmm. so that was um, that made it a little more kind of. Uh, raised the stakes a little, as they say, in in plotting circles, and and made it all feel pretty fraught, uh, but also very exciting as I got closer and closer to that ending and and saw that I was going to make it. Um, it. It was it was really fun. In some ways, you know, the the first novel is the one that you've been thinking about all your life, and all the rest of the novels aren't necessarily that. You know, the so uh, down at the Magic Kingdom was was maybe a little more premeditated in that I'd had a long time to think about what I would put in a novel when I finally finished one. Mm-hmm. It's the first book also that we've covered that was available not only for free in a lot of formats, but in a variety of different open formats. Um, I know that you believe very strongly that allowing people to have your books for free increases the promotion and and word of mouth, therefore increasing the overall sales. Um, How has that been working and why haven't more authors picked up on your method? Well, it's you know it's hard to answer the how's it's been working uh, uh, question because designing a good empirical experiment in which you compare apples to apples that is you know down at the Magic Kingdom released without a Creative Commons license to down at the Magic Kingdom with a Creative Commons license to compare the sales uh, that's very hard to do without a time machine um, mm-hmm. yeah or so, alternate reality you know, or something. yeah exactly so so you know we've got we've got. Um, indicators but not proof the indicators have been pretty good you you know it outsold what my publisher thought it would sell uh it it's still in print it's gone through many many printings it's been translated into a lot of languages it's been adapted in lots of different ways um i've made a lot of money from it uh could i have made more money from it i i don't know um uh, my suspicion is no my suspicion is that i have maximized my profits from down in the magic kingdom by giving it away uh and that's been borne out with the other books too i mean that the first young adult novel i did little brother which was in in 2008 still in print and hardcover because it's selling so well they're they're up to 90,000 hardcovers in print it's been translated now into 17 languages the audiobook's been been out for a while now for random house audio and the guy who did transformers bought the film rights and and you know that's a, that's a free open download too and there's there's lots of reasons to do it. One is I think that it sells more books. The other one is that I don't know how you stop people from copying the book if they want to, right? Yeah. It's, it's you know, to to those publishers who believe in DRM, I say, behold the typist. You know, it's it's not as though copying books wasn't a solved problem a long time ago. So, you know, I figure if if people are going to copy my books, then I might as well figure out how to work with them instead of against them. Um, I've I've never encountered a successful business that began with running around calling your biggest fans thieves. So it seems like the obvious uh, choice, but more people don't do it. People don't like that. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, there's, you know, there's a fair number of writers who, who, who have done it in, in one way or another, you know, at Tor especially, which has been a very friendly house to it. Uh, you know, there's Carl Schrader and Peter Watts and Charlie Strauss has done it with some of his books. I mean, there are a lot of writers who've, who've, who've experimented with it in one way or another. I've probably gone in it with, uh, with both feet more than, than other writers, but, um, but I, I'm not the only one by, by a long chalk. Um, there's a certain amount of reluctance on the part of publishers, and there's a certain amount of reluctance on the part of agents, and there's a certain amount of reluctance on the part of writers. It's kind of counterintuitive in some ways. Without getting into a long discussion about um, optimal pricing strategies, there's there's <laughs> a certain concern, which you know obviously is this big thing now with Macmillan being, which you know Macmillan owned Tor, who published down at the Magic Kingdom, Macmillan being shuttered to the Amazon store over a dispute on the optimal way to price books. Um, there is a certain uh, uh, concern that I that I think is absolutely valid that um, if you make a low cost item available simultaneous with your highest margin item that some of the people who might have bought the highest margin item which is the hardcover uh, will instead of buying the hardcover go out and buy the um, go out and 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 get the ebook instead or the 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 free ebook or the paperback or whatever and those people will defect and so that's always a concern. Um, the question is whether not whether you'll lose some customers, but whether you'll gain more customers than you lose. And I think that's the question of every business proposition, because anything you do causes you to lose customers. If you double the price, you'd lose some customers. Um, if you have the price, you'd you'd, you'd uh, lose some customers from a higher priced item. Hmm. It, you know, this isn't about being like a patchouli scented info hippie necessarily. This is about trying to figure out the best way to make the most money. Well, and it's not about just passing around the book for free either. Uh, you state in your author's note that you're happy to have people remix your work uh, and do mashups and, and, and make use of that Creative Commons license in, in good creative ways. What are some of the things that people have done with Down and Out? Oh, well, so someone wrote a, la- a lost chapter. Um, uh, which uh, was kind of an interesting lost chapter that that uh, explained a bunch of stuff that they thought should have been in the book, but about how the conspirators operated. Wow. Um, there, there's um, there's a there's a guy who wrote a, a wonderful. Um, this wasn't under the Creative Commons license. This was just under the banner of fair use. There's a guy who wrote a really wonderful story called Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom, a science fiction story that was in um, I think it was in Jonathan Strawn's first Eclipse anthology. Um, that that's just a super superb story and riffs on Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom the way that Down and the Magic Kingdom riffs on other stories like uh, uh, and books like Down and Out in Paris and London George Orwell's very good book but uh, and so there's been a lot of that there's been a lot of fan art um, certainly you know you have uh, uh, this book The Woofy Factor which is kind of a business book about social marketing that's using the term woofy and you hear woofy mm-hmm. used a lot um, in, yeah. in circles uh, so yeah it's I think that there's been lots of ways that it's been picked up on and run with uh, that I've that I found exciting in small ways and large. I think that it's a danger to kind of focus too much on the product of the fan activity as opposed to the process of the fan activity. I think that um, for a lot of, of fan stuff, the the part that gives you that kind of aesthetic uh, joy, the, the thing that you get, you know, you look at a painting and the painting kind of tugs at your heart. That's the aesthetic joy. The aesthetic joy of fan activity is sometimes the, the participation and not what comes of it, right? It's, it's a, you know, so like the process of writing fan fiction in a forum with a bunch of other people reading it and tossing in is the part that makes you feel that artistic exhilaration that you get from looking at a good piece of art. It's not necessarily the words when they're done. I sometimes say that judging fan fiction or other fan art by the media that's left behind after the process is done is like judging a sex act by what's left behind on the sheets. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, 
it's it's a it's a, it's not always true, but it's often true that it's a it's a journey and not a destination. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious to know how you feel about the idea of Wuffy. Um, it never really became clear to me reading the book whether or not I personally thought it would be like a good thing for society or just more information overload or or kind of unfair. Or actually, it's something I would really want. Um, that having been said, I definitely think it, it would be really nice to have it sometimes. You know, when I'm trying to get seated at a restaurant. So, what is your? Do you think it's like the downfall of society, or is it something positive? Well, I think we already have it, right? I mean, I think that like that there are people who have a lot of of woofy uh, that has been translated into influence and power. Some of them are very rich as well, uh, but some of them are, are merely influential and get a lot of uh, and get a lot of influence and power out of the, out of who they are and and what they can do. Mm-hmm. Um, fairness, you you mentioned fairness, and I think that's a really good and important concept that's under considered among people who find woofy to be a very admirable idea. Um, Woofie has this has many of the same problems that cash has, which is that when you got a lot of cash, you get more opportunities to get even more cash. And when you got a lot of woofie, that is when a lot of people hold you in high esteem, you get lots of opportunities to do things that will have people hold you in even greater esteem. So it's it's a rich get richer kind of system. Um, those systems, I think, in the long term, are pretty corrosive because you end up with with. Uh, you end up with a, a kind of stratification of society. You know, my dad had a lot of woofy, which meant that I got to hang around with him and do things that made people like me a lot, which gave me a lot of woofy, which means that my kids can. And yeah, it's almost like a caste wise, you know, system in a way. Yeah, well, and, you know, it, 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 um, Americans will, will swear up and down that it's, that it's a classless society. But, hmm. you know, the social mobility in America is pretty low. Same with Canada, where I'm from, and definitely here in the United Kingdom. You know, you wear your – even more so than in the States, you wear your social class uh, on your accent. And um, there is such a thing as being posh and poor in the United Kingdom, right? You can be the wrong kind of rich here. Hmm. Um, where where you know you will never you will never gain the credibility and and the respect and and really have those opportunities and and the deference um, if you have a shitty accent if you have a, a crummy sorry I don't know if you if you allow cussing That's fine, here don't worry about it. If you have a crummy accent, then even even if you get very rich, then you would if you've got an accent you know you could cut glass with, um, even if you've got no money at all. So yeah, definitely um, uh, the the absence of social mobility or the likelihood that that so that social system the social system will become stratified in a woofy society is something I find very worrisome. I think one of the things that appeals about a woofy society is that there's elements of meritocracy to it. And, and you know, on the one hand, I think everyone likes to imagine that if if we were all judged on our merit, that we'd come out ahead. Um, you know, most of us most of us like to assume that you know that we have a lot of merit. Uh, and on the other hand, I I think that um that we have all had the experience of people who were promoted beyond their merit, um, who are inexplicably you know I call it the Gabor sisters problem, right? People people who seem to have a lot of social power and money and and all that goes with it, and yet have done nothing that anyone can see that merits it. I mean, I guess Ava Gabor was in Green Acres, which is pretty good, but oh, did any. Yeah, yeah Zsa just wrote on Ava's success. They're kind of like the, I yeah, guess exactly. the, the modern equivalent would be the Hilton sisters, in a way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Famous yeah. For, for famous for having genitals. <laughs> <laughs> or, or on their merits, I guess you could argue in a certain way there. But um, I suppose. Uh, is, famous is for having possi- a bad. Famous for having a bad sidekick password. Yeah. If if you. If you have a woofy society, is it possible to have that same sort of thing where you have the wrong kind of woofy richness where where people still like, eh, he's got a lot of woofy, but eh, don't like that accent? Well, I think that's the, that's the definition of, of woofy, right? Is it, it's the, it's the, um, 
it's that it's supposed to do away with that problem is, is that it's supposed to only reflect, um, you know, your self-correcting your, in that way, you just, because if you have well, the wrong kind of accent, you just pull it away or something. Well, and I hint at this idea of left-handed woofy, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not necessarily a universal. The you know, it, it, and and it, you may have this idea that the the friend of your enemy is your friend, and and the enemy of your friend is your enemy, and all the rest of it. You know, so so it, it may be that that having, you know, if 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 uh, if 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 say I don't know who's a polarizing person. If Sarah Palin says that you're an idiot, you may get a lot of people who who will automatically assume that you're a pretty good person. You know, that that sort of thing. Right. Now, you've written a, a, a lot since Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom, uh, and I'm sure you learned a lot along the way. If you went back, and, and this is one of those questions that, you know, you can never go back and start over, but are there things about Down and Out that you would tweak or change or, or maybe in a, some imagined sequel you would, you would carry the story in a different way? Well, I think I would have bought gold at $400 an ounce if I could go back. <laughs> <laughs> Me um, too. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Um, what, what would I change if I could go back? You know, I I wouldn't. I think that that um, Down and Out the Magic Kingdom is a great young writer's first novel. I mean, young in this term is in this in this context is a very relative term because you know most novelists by the time they finish paying their dues in short story land and getting all the rejections and so on, their first novel as a young writer comes out as mine did when they're in their early thirties, which isn't actually all that young. For most of human history, that's like senescence. Right. Um, but as a as a young writer, I think that um that that it reflects kind of the the uh, first of all the the willingness to uh to look at some really big questions like that another magic kingdom kind of raises and then asserts that it has the answer and moves on to questions like um does consciousness move with the body or does it or you know can it be stored in a machine right um it 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 you know it has these it raises these gigantic kind of singularity style questions each of which themselves could treat and uh, you know with an entire series of science fiction novels and kind of just zips right past them merrily in in kind of a high adolescent style and I think that that's something that that I think you actually lose that if you when when you've written long enough when you've written long enough and you've been kind of bitten by critics long enough and you kind of you've 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 had enough time to be reflective about what you're doing instead of having it come. Uh, somewhat automatically as 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 writing does when it's at its best um you know it, it becomes hard you you you, st- you flinch away from uh from merrily glossing over well yeah i found it very refreshing actually because so many authors now go into such long explanations of the the world within their story so you know you have a total understanding of what's going on but I liked mm. how you just kind of plunged the reader right into this world and was like you'll figure it out if you keep reading you'll learn what all this means yeah, I don't think that that's writers now, though. I mean, I mean, no, just in general. Dude. Yeah, the things we've been reading <laughs> yeah. lately. I guess I should have said and <laughs> yeah, with. Okay, fair enough. But like, yeah, I mean, you know, Dune. <laughs> <laughs> Dune. I mean, come on. Yeah, Mister Babylon. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I like I like Frank Herbert as much as the next guy, but but Dune. Yeah. Well, one thing that I, I appreciated, uh, and and you're explaining, I think, to me why is the deadheading. Uh, situation was just uh, accepted. It was assumed. You know, there was a little bit of philosophizing on it, but really, that is the way I feel like 
culture works is these things that we agonize and wonder will the, how will this affect society once they come and once everyone starts using them it's like, oh, it's here those, now. Phil- those philosophical questions become sort of sidelights because everybody's using it they're like well I don't really care how it works it I'm going to do it yeah. and, and deadheading was a great example of that and I felt that was so realistic that like this huge thing about what happens to consciousness and are we really the same person if we've been downloaded into a computer and then backed up and then put back into our own bodies is sort of like yeah but you do it you know with that that i feel yeah. like that's really the way society would accept that eventually well i think that kind of what happens is it starts off by being a, a, a what you know a, a moral panic like the the um you know something that the crappier newspapers here in the uk the the so-called red top newspapers mm-hmm. would cover you know about sci- egghead scientists plan to uh plan to murder you uh keep your brain in a computer and there there's kind of a widespread moral panic and then it turns out that it's incredibly convenient and uh, maybe that it kind of taps into one or more of our primal needs, like it's it's full of you know it's it's full of salt and fat, or uh, it, it you know it makes us rich, or or it you know delivers us lots of endorphin, or it, it feeds our sexual needs, or whatever. And we suddenly we just kind of cognitive dissonance sets in, and you just completely dismiss the moral panic you were feeling last year in favor of this kind of eminent practicality. That's like, eh, yeah, it's a couple of years ago I was worried about dying, but like. You know, check this out. I haven't been bored on an airplane in like five years. It's awesome. Yeah. And and then you know, kind of uh, what happens is it then becomes the domain of of deep thinkers again. And you know, those those are the people who are going around today, going th- saying things like, um, "What has it done to our uh, discourse?" that you can talk to people in lots of languages uh, using Google Translate who are kind of sitting around now going like, like, what is this actually doing? And trying to, trying to pick tease out of, you know, huge corpuses of data, some of those second and third order effects, you know, trying to, trying to figure out what, what it all means. Um, and, you know, I think that it's kind of hard to do that, kind of have that thoughtful discussion when you're, when everyone's having the moral panic too. So maybe that you need to wait for it. I mean, an example might be this, this uh, fight about Macmillan and Amazon and this battle between different ways of, of um, discovering optimal prices or, or optimally pricing for profit where, you know, there's this gross narrative that goes, um, depending on who you are, um, Amazon is like Apple uh, all they want to do is enslave the publishers by locking them into their proprietary technology and they don't care if it destroys their business. Or the other one is like Amazon is like Apple. All they want to do is rescue the publishers from their own hideboundness by pricing things in a way that everyone can understand and packaging it up in a nice package. Um, and But neither of those are particularly nuanced stories. Um, and, you know, we might, we're probably going to have to wait until all the smoke is cleared and, and, and it's become normal for someone to turn around and go, actually, Actually, here are all the different factors that were going on in that in that price war. So yeah, I I, I mean in, uh, in there's a sequel to Down at the Magic Kingdom, a, a novella I wrote for an anthology uh, that w- was also published on Salon uh, called Truncat, and it, it it has a much more explicit uh, agenda about understanding some of those bigger questions, and it's set like a hundred years after mm-hmm. Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom. And it's full of like seventeen-year-olds who are who are small for their age because their parents spent so much time putting them into suspended animation whenever they were inconvenient <sighs> that they're actually not chronologically seventeen; they're like fifteen. And the reason that everyone who's seventeen is suddenly small for their age is that by the time you're seventeen, you spent two years in suspended animation because you know your parents wanted to sleep in for another hour in the morning. <laughs> As a, a father of a toddler, I can totally actually see this uh-huh. happening. 
I already kind of come to terms with the whole dying and being reborn thing with uh, transporters. So I kind of accepted the whole deadheading thing pretty quickly because, you know, they, they break you down, basically kill you when you're getting transported from one place to another in Star Trek. So, you know, just a different mode of yeah. kind of doing the same thing. I wrote a, uh, I wrote a story about that for uh, the new Space Opera 2 called To Go Boldly. That's all about how if you were, if you were actually going to build a working Starfleet and you can assume that you have what they have in Starfleet, which is a faster than light radio, faster than light transport, and and transport technology that instead of like shipping around a huge tin can full of air and people, um, you would just send something out like the size of a soccer ball, um, and it would go into orbit around a planet. It would beam down 27 copies of your most competent crew member that would be directed from Earth using faster than light radio, kind of parameterized before they were beamed down. Mm -hmm. They would go off and have their mission. When they were done, uh, they would be annihilated back into memory and you know kind of consolidated through a big diff and merge. Yeah, it does make ships uh, and, redundant, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does, right? Like, so actually, in, 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 without uh, giving away the ending of, of To Go Boldly, I posit that the reason they do it is that basically they're cosplayers. You know, they're playing Space Navy. And actually, if you <laughs> watch Star Trek that way, it. it makes a certain amount of sense, right? Sure. Why are they doing all this junk? And it really seems like, you know, they're all into, like, naval history. And, you know, they, they're like Civil War reenactors, the, the Starfleet crews, you know? Like, to the point where they're all also... They, every single crew member has some... Um, a historical period uh, that we know a lot about that they are for some reason a hobbyist of that they right. always compare events to. Oh, the Romulans! The Romulans situation is exactly like the American Soviet Cold War, and I'll phrase it all in this, which I happen to be really interested in, even though it happened like 400 years ago. And I'm going to tell you everything you need to know about the Romulans in the context of the Cold War, which you understand because you're alive today. So, yeah, I, I figure that they're essentially, they're basically all like Civil War reenactors. They're all cosplayers, and, and you know, they have a kind of fetish for Space Navy. That's awesome. I, I love the idea, too, of, of versioning yourself and then reconciling it back with a different merge. That's fantastic. <laughs> so shifting yeah, gears. It's, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Sure. Yeah. I was just going to say, uh, what about, I'm sure you get this question all the time, but what about Disney World made it the perfect setting for this book? What's, what's the fascination with Disney? So my, sh my short answer to that is I wrote a book called Down and Out the Magic Kingdom that explains it. <laughs> like, like, like Touché, the short answer I have about what I like about Di about Disney World is contained in the pages of a book that you just read. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so, if, if it's, well, what if, brought if, you to Disney World in the first place? Then I guess what 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 started the whole thing. Well, I guess it's the fact that my grandparents are old Jewish people, and so that means that they spend every uh, every winter in Florida. And so I used to go down there at Christmas break al along eventually with my brother, who's five years younger than me. And, you know, when you've got like a seven-year-old and a 12-year-old at your senior's condo in Fort Lauderdale, there's really not much to do. So we get in their big air-conditioned land yacht, and we drive three hours to Orlando, and we go to Disney World. And then, you know, my parents would sometimes come down. Mostly they'd just kind of send us off. There's another version of deadheading for your kids, right? They'd send us to Florida for, for winter break so they could get a break too and uh, but but every now and again my parents would come down too and they'd bring us as well and so i really grew up spending my my christmases my christmas breaks sometimes easter break or mm -hmm. or, or, or canadian thanksgiving in october going down to disney world with my family um and so i in some sense i kind of grew up going there and it, it really um really meant a lot to me uh, partly because the technology partly because of the art you know i i actually think that the uh, dark ride as an art form is a really interesting and powerful one. It's very moving at times. Mm -hmm. There's almost no, no one who takes it seriously. And of the people who do, the people who build Disney World are are the best, I think. Um, the, magic, the, the Haunted Mansion has a special thing for me. Um, 
the first trip I remember taking to Disney World, I went when I was two, but the first one I remember was when I was six. And they still had ticket books then. And so you got the A tickets, the B tickets, the C tickets. It was kind of, um, they would, it was traffic shaping for, yes. uh, for, for Disney World, right? So they give you, but you couldn't just buy tickets to go on the awesome rides. You get a book of tickets to go on all the rides. And so you'd kind of, it was a way to keep people from just lining up over and over again for the great big rides, which were called e-ticket rides. And at the at the end of our of our last day there, I think we went for two days. Uh, we had one e-ticket left for each of us, and we went through the guidebook, which in my memory was like a huge color book, but I think was probably like a three-page color brochure. But we went through it, and and we looked at the Haunted Mansion description, and my dad was like, oh, we should go on this. And my mom was like, oh, I don't know. Corey's only six. He may not like it. It may be scary for him. And and I and I insisted that we go, and it was dark, and we got to the to the queue area, and there were, um, there were some teenagers who, in my mind, looked just like the Scooby-Doo crew, and uh, they were the only other people in the queue there. And there was the wolf noises, and they were making wolf noises. And my dad was making wolf noises. I was getting kind of scared in a good way. And then the, then the cast member opened the doors, and I really remember her. And she came out, and she gave us this, you know, dead fisheye look, and she said, Master Gracie requests more bodies. And I really remember that. And it was just completely awesome. Because one thing about, about the Haunted Mansion and Disney, in, in the Magic Kingdom anyway, is it's the only place where they're actually allowed to be kind of rude. Everywhere else they have to smile. It's the only place where cast members don't have to smile all the time and where they can kind of be a little weird and rude. Um, and so it was very shocking because I'd spent two days there getting big smiles from everyone. And here was someone kind of glaring at me. And, and the ride was just awesome, right? It is a great ride, but it had this great buildup. And then afterwards, this was 1977, which was, the, in my in my opinion, the absolute zenith of Haunted Mansion merchandise. And they had this great, great gift shop. And I mortgaged my uh, allowance like eight years into the future and kind of bought one of everything. It was it was completely wicked. Mm-hmm. And we we went back to the car. We got in the car. We started driving back to Fort Lauderdale. And I fell asleep. I was an inveterate car sleeper. I still am. And uh, the car broke down. And they called the auto club and they sent in a new car. Uh, they sent in a new rental car and they transferred me oh, and all no. to the new car Uh-oh. in my sleep. And when I woke up, you know, I was in my grandparents' condo the next day. My, my stuff didn't come with me. Oh, no. They, so they stopped selling. And I've never seen it again. So these, these toys in my mind have grown to be the most amazing, wicked, cool merchandise ever invented. Because you can't get it anymore. I'm sure if I held them today, they'd seem kind of junky. I was going to say, did, did you, did, have you ever tried to hunt them down on eBay or anything? I, I have been, like, the day eBay came online, I figured out how to bookmark complex searches. And I have been loading that bookmarked complex search every day since the day it stopped. It, it was auction web when I when I created that bookmark. Um, and wow. the, the ones that I'm really after have never, ever come up on eBay. Yeah. That's great. You know, I had a, I had similar experiences when I was a kid because my grandparents lived down in uh, St. Petersburg. And so every summer I would go down to Florida and go to Disney World. And for me, though, it was Pirates. Pirates was really like the ride mm. that I always had to go on and wait in line for. And I probably went down to Disney World every year for the first 12 years of my life. So it's interesting how that's kind of, sh- of a shared experience for a lot of people. It makes for that that, that like token shared life experience that a lot of people have been through. I mean, going to Disney World, that's what you do. And that takes us back to the yeah, cast I, system because I have never been to either Disneyland or Disney World. Oh, well, then we're better than you. Deary exactly. me. Yeah. Deary me. My, my, <laughs> I have to my, remedy my, that. Monica, 
when we last met, we were at the Mesa in Chiba in, in outside of Tokyo, mm-hmm. and I had my little toddler with me, my one-year-old, and the net, later that day, I took her to Tokyo Disneyland. She's actually now been to Tokyo Disneyland, Disneyland Paris, Disneyland California, and Walt Disney World. She's a she's lucky two. girl. Lucky girl. <laughs> I, have, I have not been to Disneyland girl. yet. I've lived in California for six years, and I just can't make oh, myself God. go. Like, I don't oh, know no, no, no. You have to go. No, no, it's wonderful because um, it's it was it's all about constraint. So they they didn't have a lot of space in in Disneyland. So a lot of the best stuff in Disneyland, a lot of the best stuff in Disney World was adapted from stuff that they had to build into Disneyland in a certain way because they didn't have the space or the money. Mm-hmm. So like the the Pirates in, in in California has got this incredibly long uh, lead up and exit sequence. And what those actually are are those are sequences in which the boat is is sailing out into to a big green box in the parking lot because because Pirates is actually out in the parking lot. There wasn't any room oh, in the wow. park to build it. And the huh. Haunted Mansion, too. In, in, in Florida, when you get into that stretch room, the ceiling goes up. It doesn't actually, it's not actually an elevator. But when you, when California, in the, in the original one, the floor actually goes down and it takes you down into a tunnel that leads you again out into a big box in the parking lot where the ride <laughs> takes there's no room. It does have so the matador, a, though. So that's that's one difference that that Disneyland has over Disney World. We don't have the matador. The matter, world. The Matterhorn. Matterhorn. See, I don't even. Yeah. That would be a great ride. A, a bullfighting the mat- matador <laughs> ride. That's right. A bullfighting. A bullfighting uh, uh, coaster. Yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> Lots of red capes. Uh, one last question before yeah, we I wrap go on up. About Disneyland all day. Yeah, so, <laughs> we could do a whole Disney podcast. Yeah, we should actually. Uh, one thing I've I've heard Corey, I've heard you talk about before is that one of your strategies when writing is to just take things that actually exist in real life that maybe not a lot of people know about and sort of project them into the future. Did Did you do that? Were you doing that in Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom? Are there examples of that? Yeah, sure. Well, so Woofy is kind of a lift in some ways from Slash Dot Karma, which at the time was oh was yeah Woofy. okay. Mm-hmm. This known um, uh, reputation systems, also eBay reputation. Um, back, you know, in that in that halcyon day, you know, could have ninety nine, ninety eight. It it looked to us like uh, eBay's reputation system. We thought it was we thought it was bulletproof. Back in those days, before we had these Manchurian candidate sellers who would actually spend like five years buying, you know, Bic pens for a dollar, building up a huge amount of reputation currency, and then turn around and sell, you know, ten non-existent laptops and make off with fifteen thousand dollars and disappear, you know. Mm-hmm. But but you know, th- in those days, reputation economy seemed like a very plausible idea, um, and so that was certainly an inspiration. The other thing that really inspired me uh, was um, Napster. Uh, you know, this was ninety nine. When I was when I was really working on it in earnest, and Napster caught my imagination in a lot of ways, but but the one that I found most exhilarating was that in the Napster world, the more valuable something was, the easier it was to get, and um, the more abundant it became. Right, because everyone who who downloaded a cop, everyone who requested a Napster song got a copy of the uh, of the Napster song, uh, and so that made it easier for subsequent people to get copies of that song as mm-hmm. well. And this was a like a an incredibly uh, um, uh, important seismic shift in economics, uh, because up until then, economics had largely concerned itself with the problem that when things became more valuable, they became more scarce. We never really had to contend with a problem that arose when things that became more valuable became more abundant. And and I still think we're struggling with it. I mean, I think we're we're you know certainly the record industry is still thrashing on it. But but in general, we're still struggling with what you do when um, value moves in the opposite direction of scarcity. Mm-hmm. 
So um, I noticed that there was an entire paragraph referencing uh, Snow Crash, which is another one of our previous book picks. How similar would you say are the worlds of hero protagonist and Julius? Oh, I, th- I think they're pretty different. Uh, you know, they're, um, it's, not, uh, it's not apocalyptic, for one thing, or, or at least not explicitly apocalyptic the way that, that the Snow Crash world is. Um, and, of course, in Snow Crash, what you have are, instead of the dissolution of the nation-state in favor of a kind of happy, uh, ad hoc, uh, you know, network-mediated anarchy with, without any kind of big formal institutions, in, um, in, in Snow Crash, you, you actually have a kind of hyper-capitalism where, where the nation-state is disassembled and replaced by corporations, sovereign corporations, which is more or less the opposite of what happens in Down and Out the Magic Kingdom. All right. Well, our final question, we've kept you on quite longer than we expected to, and we're sorry for that. Um, but with everything you're working on these days, do you actually get a chance to read any science fiction yourself? And if so, what are some of your favorites that you've read recently? Yeah, I, I, I do get to read rather a lot of science fiction. Um, I review a lot of it on Boing Boing, so so I try to keep up with it. And if if you'll bear with me a second, I'll, I'll look up some of the reviews I've got pending. Sure. Uh, I'm just bringing up our little movable type interface here. I don't I don't um, recall if it was you particularly, but the unwritten graphic novel was a recommendation I pulled off of Boing Boing uh, oh yeah, recently. Was it was fabulous. Really enjoyed reading that. So looking at the reviews that I've got queued up right now, a combination of books that are about to come out and books that I've, that I've reviewed but I haven't posted the reviews on yet. Um, the first one is Paolo Bacci Galupi's Wind Up Girl, uh, which I, I call science fiction's It book uh, for 2010. Uh, it's, it's the strongest debut novel I can remember reading in a very long, long time. Um, and, and I absolutely commend it to your attention. It's, it's, it's a post-peak oil uh, biotech novel that is written with uh, an enormous amount of poetry and compassion um, and, and absolutely just a wonderful debut novel, uh, just a wonderful novel, period. Um, I also just read uh, a chapbook by Kim Stanley Robinson from PM Press called The Lucky Strike that consists of a short, an alternate history short story about the, um, the man who dropped the bomb on Hiroshima um, and then an essay about alternate history, and then an interview with Terry Bisson about the essay and the story. And it's, it's, it's like a 110-page long book, and it's a very, very quick read. And it's a really, really wonderful uh, book. The story is very good. The essay is very thought-provoking. The conversation is really satisfying. It's, it's, a, it's just a perfect little, uh, little setup. And then two books that are coming. Um, the first one is by Ian Tregellis, who's a new writer. He's, I think he's got a couple of short stories out, but his his debut novel is a book called Bitter Seeds, and it's out in April. And um, it's a uh, it's an alternate history set in World War II, and uh, it's the the premise is that um, Germans ascend, the Nazis breed essentially X Men in a in a rogue science program, and that you know one of them can teleport and they can they can do these things that are kind of superpowers, and that this tips the balance of war and this leads the english to seek out and enlist english magicians english warlocks um who uh have to con- who have to do blood magic so they have to cut themselves to do magic mm-hmm. and the warlocks are the the last line of defense against the x-men and it's all taking place among the secret services because it's not widely known on either side that this that this war is going on and it's the first of three volumes and, and it's really 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 good i mean just a, a tremendous cracking adventure story and ian was one of my clarion students at the 
Clarion Science Fiction Writing Workshop, and he's a very, very, very good writer. Uh, and this book is absolutely, uh, I commend it very highly to your attention. And then the other debut novel that I've recently read and blurbed that I've got a review queued up for is Mary Robinette Kowal's uh, debut novel, uh, which is called Shades of Milk and Honey, which is out in August. And it's, um, it's a Regency drawing room uh, love story um, that uh, its wrinkle is that um, magic is a fact of life. And so, uh, you know, someone who's a, a well-bred young woman uh, would be expected to know how to paint, how to play a, 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 a piano or pianoforte, and, and also how to cast illusions. Um, but casting illusions makes them faint. If you do too much of this illusion stuff, you oh, kind of faint. they need their fainting so couch. <laughs> That's right. So they, they're they're falling on the fainting right. edge, and it's a very it's again it's a very beautiful, very very lyrically told novel that is just full of magic, um, and, and a kind of matter of fact magic that I really like. It's it's magic without it doesn't read like a D and D manual. There's not a lot of stuff about the mechanics of it. It just all comes together and just feels really real. Um, so yeah, that's that's there's some alternate history, some fantasy, some science fiction, uh, some futuristic science fiction there. Um, I do read a lot of science fiction. I really like it. I'll have to add those to my queue. I'm I'm going through the IO9 list right now, trying to read all of them um, on my own time, uh, separate from the book club. So I've got I've got a lot to to catch up on. And we do need to uh, pick a book for the for the next uh, the the next choice for the Sword and Laser Book Club. Uh, Corey, if you if you had a vote, what what would you uh, think people should jump into next? Oh, I go for that Batchy Galupi. Uh, yeah. It's a it's a it's a fast read. It's an awesome book. It's very topical. Um, it's it's uh, um, it is both a, a polemical political novel and a po- poetic novel. This, these are not things that come together very often. Mm-hmm. Um, it's what I like most of, about Orwell, for example, is, is his ability to infuse polemic with poetry. Um, you know, it's kind of, I, I, you can think of it as like a Billy Bragg novel, you know. Uh, and, uh, I, I, and not only that, but I know Paolo slightly. I, I met him at a, several cons. And he is just a really nice guy. So he's one of those guys who, like, you read you, – you, it's, it's a funny thing that happens in science fiction is every now and again you'll meet someone at a convention that you've heard some nice things about. You may, may not have read any of their work yet. And they'll just be the nicest person. And you'll, you, you'll kind of have this reluctance to read their books because on the one hand, you know, you kind of hope that, that their books are great and that they – and um, that they'll go on to do great things. On the other hand, you fear maybe that their books aren't that great. And it would just suck to have this person who's a lovely, lovely person (laughs) who's not a great writer and to have to, you know, spend the rest of your career tap dancing around the fact that you didn't like the books very much. So I, I, you know, Paolo is this, is just like the sweetest, swellest, nicest guy. You know, he's, he's like a John Scalzi type, you know, you just meet him and he's just, just as nice as nice can be. Um, and it turns out that he's not only nice, but he's incredibly talented. Well, that, that's fantastic. I, I think, uh, Veronica, we, we might have our choice. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm down for that. Definitely. Uh, but one more cool thing about it is that it's from Nightshade Press. It's not from a big press. It's, it's a tiny little indie, and it shows you what the indies are doing, which is taking some risks um, in places where the, the big presses aren't necessarily able to go. So, um, you know, it'd be great if that risk paid off for them. And I think it will. I think they may have a Hugo winner on their hands. Well, I appreciate the recommendation and definitely appreciate taking the time uh, to talk with us, Corey. It's always great to talk to you and I really enjoyed the conversation today. Excellent. Well, thank you. It was absolutely my pleasure. I enjoy the podcast. Thank now, you. I know you've got a few, uh, a few new, you've always got a few new irons in the fire. Tell, tell people a little bit about what, what the latest books you have out or are, are and anything else that you're doing that you want people to know about. 
Sure. So um, I've, I've had a book out now for about three months, a new book called Makers, which is a book about um, hackers, hardware hackers who go on making stuff even after the economy collapses. So it's a very topical book, although I wrote it as a parable about the dot-com collapse. It, it happened to be published in the middle of the financial meltdown, which, uh, you know, good news for me, not so good news for everyone else. Um, and it's doing really well, and it's had some very good critical notices. And, and what's really made me happy is I have a, a steady flow of, of fan mail from people who are makers, from people people who are Arduino hackers, from people who are fooling around with 3D printers, from people who hot rod, from people who just love making stuff, and they say that I got it right. And that's uh, that's absolutely the best thing I can imagine. That's 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 a, an even better outcome than I'd really hoped for. Um, and uh, I've got a new young adult novel coming out in um, uh, May called For the Win, and it's a book about... Uh, <laughs> It's, it's a video game book. This is what I was doing at the Tokyo Game Show when I ran into uh, Veronica. It's mm. a book about gold farmers who form a trade union uh, called the Industrial Workers of the World Wide Web or the Webleys. Uh, and it's an exciting adventure novel about people running around in video games, killing each other with swords and running around internet cafes in places like Guangzhou and Shenzhen and Orange County, hitting each other with baseball bats. And all the while, I sneak in some lessons in macroeconomics, labor politics, uh, cognitive or, or behavioral economics, and so on. And then lastly, I've got a short story collection that's coming out very soon, I think within the next three months, that's a self-published short story collection that's that's experimental in that. I'm selling it at a lot of different price points in different packages, a little like the Nine Inch Nails uh, story. Mm -hmm. And that's called With a Little Help. And there's an audiobook edition that's read by people like Neil Gaiman and Leo Laporte and Will Wheaton. And there's a, uh, a, a limited edition hardcover where every every one of the 250 limited hardcovers has um, paper ephemera that have been donated by other writers. So um, I've got things like um, uh, Jay Likes Cancer Diagnosis, which he signed and sent to me. And those are going to be bound in as endpapers, unique endpapers on each edition. And then the paperbacks come from Lulu, and there's four different covers. And, and every month I update them with a new appendix that has all the financials for the book. Yeah. Uh, and if you send me a typo from the book, I'll fix it in the next copy printed and give you a footnote on the page where the typo was found. That's fantastic. I really, I, re I love all of those ideas. The, 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 it really shows that you don't need to be tied down to the current model. There's all kinds of things you can try. And, and all of those mm. just sounded terribly intriguing. I can't wait to see them. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it hitting the stands. One of the things that I've learned from this is that because a lot of it I'm relying on volunteers from my friends, uh, volunteer stuff from my friends is that it's, it's, it's a little slow, uh, slower than I thought it would be, partly because, um, you know, if, if it, it's not just one friend that you're depending on, it's a whole bunch of friends, some of whom have to do things in series. And so if one friend kind of slows down a bit, uh, it can it can blow a bunch of other friends' commitments. So um, it's taken longer than I thought it would. I thought I would have it out before Christmas. Now I think I'll be lucky if I have it out kind of the in less, spring. The uh, less often considered slow-footedness of the crowd. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, I think that's a pretty important lesson. You know, I'm not, I, it's not like it's chafing me or anything. Yeah. The reason I'm doing this is that I want to learn a bunch of stuff about it um, and find out where it does and doesn't work. It's 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 funny because my publisher and my agent are both really excited about it, and I think one of the things they're excited about is they want to figure out which parts um, they can be replaced for and which parts they're still indispensable on. Yeah, right. You know? Which parts they need That's to double one of the down. That, yeah, and and you know, publishing is 
it's been a long time since the primary job of a publisher was to arrange to have your book, uh, you know, cast in sheets of lead and run off a press. <laughs> you know, publishing is is a is a is a bunch of services, one of which may or may not be printing, mm-hmm. um, and figuring out what those services can be. When people go, is publishing dead? Um, the answer is, of course, it isn't, because uh, no writer can do everything for themselves. Um, you know, I. I Writers aren't their own ISPs, right? Uh, maybe maybe writers will need publishers to provide internet access to them, and maybe publishers can package that up. Writers need a lot of things. Writers need um, physiotherapy for their bad backs. I mean, you know, like this is all part of the stuff that publishers may or may not end up providing in the future. Um, you the, know, uh, writer spa. Well, whether it's whether it's tax and ergonomics advice, or or help uh, not sounding like an idiot when you blog. Um, you know, none of these are, it's, it's not immediately obvious to me why any of these are things that publishers couldn't someday provide mm-hmm. and that writers might not someday need. So absolutely. Uh, is craphound.com the best place for folks to find you? Yeah. You know, I'm the first Corey in Google. Uh, page rank's been very good to me. So just put C-O-R-Y into Google and you'll get lots of nice results. All right. Corey Doctorow, thank you so much for joining us on Sword and Laser today. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thanks guys. So it looks like we are going to be reading Wind Up Girl by Paolo Bacigalupi. 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 It's <laughs> just fun to say his name. Bacigalupi. That is a mouthful, but I do like it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this. I, and I'm glad Corey picked a book because neither one of us would have ever picked this book. And he's so steeped in things that he's going to throw out something that will be interesting. So I hope you like it. I know. I want to read that alternate history X-Men versus Warlocks book. Also. Yes, that sounds for awesome. sure. I know you love alternate history books. I, yeah, and I love Warlocks and X-Men. You do love Warlocks. I'm actually not a, a huge X-Men you're guy. You're a mage. But you're not a, you're not a I Warlock. I play a mage in Warcraft, but you know, I almost played. I actually have a Warlock alt. He's my, uh, he's my auction house mule. I didn't know that. Yeah. My Ex-Servious. first tune ever was a Warlock. <laughs> well, uh, we will give you some... This is not a WoW some, podcast, though. We will give Sorry. you some more info on Wind Up Girl in our kickoff episode, which will be our next episode of Sword and Laser. Yeah, but if you want to pick it up now, uh, we'll put it up in the store, and hopefully you can get a jump start. And uh, I'm still burning my way through the top 20 books that I, that I mentioned earlier. You're nuts. I, I know. I I'm would like do to do it. that, too. But I'm actually reading Generation A by Douglas Copeland right now uh, in an attempt to stay up to date on having read pretty much everything he's ever written. And it's pretty good. So now I'm going to have to double down and finish him up so I can get into Paolo. Excellent. Bachigalupi. Bachigalupi. I'm never going to say it wrong again, I promise. <laughs> I feel so bad. I hope he doesn't hear that. I, 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 I hate butchering people's names. It's so embarrassing. Well, thanks again to Corey Doctorow for joining us today. And don't forget our partner, StickerFoo, who provides you awesome, geeky stickers. Use the code SWORD1 and get 10% off the stickers at StickerFoo.com. And you can find us at thesordandlaser.com or you can email us thesordandlaser at gmail.com or hang out in the Ning forums. There's lots of cool stuff going on there. We always highlight it. We didn't get a chance to do this episode because we had too much fun talking to Corey, but we will definitely get to some user feedback in the next episode. And that is at swordandlaser.ning.com. Yeah, and don't forget to check out my interview with Epic Ruins, who are this great rock and roll fantasy band that just kind of mashes up all that stuff we always talk about together in one like kind of crazy musical act the uh, interviews up on the website as well we'll see you next time folks see you next time